Welcome to Burning Bush Online. We'll start with a, uh, a little story this morning. John had been the rock of his youth group. He was always present. He was a great leader. He was his youth pastor's go-to guy. He was known for standing up for his faith in high school. He had been on all the church's youth mission trips. He was the guy that when they came back from their trips, he would stand up and give his testimony about all the great things that God had done on the trip. He read his Bible every day. He prayed every day. He had even started a discipleship group with a group of middle school boys on his own. He was the kind of guy that, that other parents would look at and say, I wish my son was like that, or I hope my daughter marries a guy like that. John graduated from high school, and that following fall, he went to State U. There at, a, at State U, he got involved in a lot of different groups. He studied hard. He stayed out of trouble. But he couldn't really find a campus group or a church that reminded him of home. So when he came home at Christmas time, he had a sit down with his youth pastor. And he made a vow that when he went back in January, he would find a church or some kind of Christian campus group to belong to. For whatever the reason, it didn't happen. And January turned into May. As he returned home for the summer, he began to doubt his faith. A year later, at the end of his sophomore year, he hadn't even been to church since he was home at Christmas Eve. He was surrounded by secularism. He was bombarded by all types of philosophies. He was awash in a culture with all types of anti-Christian sentiment. Two years later, when he graduated, God was a distant memory. Something cool that he did when he was in high school. Depending on what statistics you look at, John represents 66 to 90% of Christian college students who leave their faith during their college years, some of them don't come back until their late 20s, and many never do. Interestingly enough, there's also some research by Barner that shows 36% of young adults felt that they couldn't ask the most pressing questions about their life and their faith in church. Folks, how in the world does that happen? How do the, do, the, do the students who seem so involved and so committed to their faith end up backing out of it four years later? How is it that students, one out of three, don't feel comfortable asking questions about their faith and about life in church? It should be the opposite of that. We need to teach our kids a fully developed understanding of their faith. When we don't teach, and please hear me, when we don't teach our kids a fully developed understanding of their faith, 
when their faith collides with the reality of life and they don't mesh, we are guaranteeing that our kids will walk away from their faith in their adult years and many of them will never come back. Now don't freak out on me this morning. I'm not trying to be Dennis Downer. Hang in here with me. I've been where you're at. I still have a couple children at home. I remember what it was like when a, when a box of cereal would come into the house and last 5.3 seconds. I remember, you know, a, a gallon of milk, maybe four times that it might last a half a minute in our house. And I remember what it was like, you know, pre-COVID times. And, and my wife and I were like Uber drivers taking our kids everywhere. So I've been there. But here's what I want to talk about this morning. And this is so important. This might be the most important in this whole series that we've been talking about. How do we teach our kids to make their faith their own? How do we do that in a world that's becoming increasingly hostile toward Christianity? In a world where biblical truths, the lines are just constantly being confused and where morality is defined by individuals or groups instead of by God. How do you live out your faith today? How do you live it out online? How do you live it out in group text? How do you live it out on social media? How do you live it out in person? Whether you're at school, whether you're at work, whether you're in the neighborhood, whether you're on the sports field, whether it's with friends or families. What kind of faith do you need to stand firm? What does it take to be a believer when no one else believes? Folks, what we're talking about is a resilient faith. A faith that stands there during times, difficult times and tough times. I want to show you a picture. There it is. No, there it's not. Excuse us, we're having some technical difficulties this morning. So a few years ago, at my house, um, my house has a, has a long driveway. We're kind of on a hill. And there's a retaining wall there. And that retaining wall in, at, the, at, the, at its peak is about nine foot tall. And about halfway up, about eye level, about six feet tall, there was this plant growing. And it's not this plant, but it, it gives you the idea of what I'm talking about. Just out of the tiniest crack in the mortar. I mean, I couldn't even hardly tell there was a crack there. There was this plant growing out. And it was about the size of this one. It was about four or five inches tall. And how it was doing it, I had no idea. But it was green. It was healthy. It was thriving in a place where there was no other plants anywhere in that wall. And yet in this harsh environment, this plant is thriving. It was resilient. That's the kind of faith we need. A resilient faith that's going to thrive when things are tough. It's going to thrive in a harsh environment. I want to talk about that this morning. How do we help our kids to make their faith their own? How do we help them to have a resilient faith? And I want to look specifically at four things this morning. There are obviously more, but we're just going to cover four of them this morning. The first one we need is this. 
Number one, we need to be clear on what it means to be a Christian. You might kind of think, well, yeah, that's obvious. But it's always not so obvious. Do you ever have these types of conversations with your children? Do you ever say, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to live for Christ in a secular world? How does that work? You see, it's hard to hold on to something that's not clearly defined. Have you ever tried to move a piece of furniture that didn't have good edges to grip? I mean, have you ever tried to move a dresser that didn't really have a top and didn't really have legs and you're, you, you can't get a handle on it? Or sometimes sofas or, or recliners are like that. You're, 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 there's nothing to hold on to and you're trying to move it and it's really difficult because it doesn't have clear edges. It's hard to do. Or how about, have you ever given a baby a bath? I'm talking about a newborn baby. I mean, isn't that like the, the cutest picture on the planet? But have you ever tried? I mean, newborn babies, they're squishy and they're slippery. You know what I'm talking about? Like you just have to really get a grip on them because the, something about their skin is, is just really slippery. And if, you know, they'll just pop right out of your hands. You, you have to really be careful when you're giving a baby a bath. That's what we're talking about this morning. Undefined beliefs are almost impossible to hold on to without a clear understanding what it means to be a Christian in this world, it gets slippery. It's hard to hold on to your faith if you're not really sure what it means when adversity strikes. When you're a student and people start teasing and start, bull start bullying you. You've got to have a clear understanding. So what does it mean to be a Christian or what does it not mean to be a Christian? Well, first of all, it's not a political conviction. And it doesn't mean that you're part of a good girl or a good boys club. It's not a religious veneer on the American dream. It's not church membership. It's not about going to church necessarily. It's not about baptism. It's not flying the American flag in your, on your porch or in the back of your pickup truck. It's not going to FCA meetings. It's not about necessarily mission trips. It's not about doing nice things for other people like helping during tornadoes or hurricanes or those kinds of events. Those are great things. But they don't make you a Christian. It's not a series of boxes that you check off. It's not classes that you take. It's not a series of rules. It's not a self-help or some kind of life enhancement ideology. It's more than that. Let me give you a simple definition by a gentleman by the name of Tommy Hilliker. This is what he says. The Christian life for a Christian is somebody who's decided to follow Jesus Christ for all of their life and all the areas of their life by the power of the Holy Spirit. A Christian is someone who's decided to follow Jesus Christ for all of their life, every area of their life. That's what being a Christian is. And I know that's a little bit wordy. But it's someone who decides to follow Jesus Christ by choice, who depends on the Holy Spirit to live out their life. 
Do you remember the invitation that Jesus gave some of the disciples and gives us today in the book of Matthew? He says this, Matthew chapter 4. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. You know, sometimes I run into people and when it comes to being a believer, they say things like, I'm just not worthy of God's love. I've just done too many bad things. Let me clean myself up first. And then I can be a follower of Jesus Christ. If I go to the doctor with chest pains, and he runs a few tests, and then he comes back to me and he says, Dennis, you need bypass surgery. And I say to him, well, let's hold off on that. Let me clean my diet up a little bit. Let me, uh, let me, let me start exercising a little bit more. And, and, and let, me, uh, let, let me do something about uh, uh, losing a little bit of weight. And then you can do the surgery. That'd be crazy, wouldn't it? But I hear that all the time from, from folks. Well, I just need to get in a better place before, before I can make a choice for Jesus. I, I'm, I'm just not worthy. And you know what Jesus tells us? Let me make the change. You accept me, and then I'll make the change. So being a Christian means you have to choose Jesus. You have to choose him. You choose to be a Christian. Second one is this. Being a Christian means that we're called to be different. We're called to be set apart. Over in the book of Romans chapter 12 verse 2 it says this. Don't copy. That's the key word. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by the changing of the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you which is good and pleasing and perfect. So here's the tension, and I want you to kind of notice that phrase there. Copy the behavior and customs of this world. When you try to copy the behavior and customs of this world, when you're just trying to fit in all the time, and you try to act and look and talk like the world, and you call yourself a follower of Christ, you know what happens? It confuses the people around you. And it doesn't just confuse other Christians. It confuses unbelievers which expect you to look different. When your life doesn't match what you talk about, it's very confusing to other people. Listen to some quotes from a couple of high school students. One said, It's difficult to walk your own path with Jesus when you see so many other Christians acting a certain way. Another teenager put it this way. When people are calling themselves believers, but are not truly representing who Jesus really is, they're wearing the Christian t-shirt, but they're living a double life on social media and with friends, it makes it hard for the rest of us trying to follow Jesus and represent him well. And he summarizes his statement, in essence, they say one thing and live another. And of course, he's not just talking to students, he's talking to grown-up kids too. Jesus had something to say about this over in the book of Revelation. He says it this way. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I want you to notice that word spit. Do you know literally that translates vomit? Jesus says, if you are two-faced, I would literally, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. You're thinking, Jesus, that's pretty harsh. But that's how serious God is about being two-faced, saying one thing and living another way. You might think, well, I thought Jesus was all about love. Jesus is all about love. And one of the reasons he says that is because he wants to make sure that somebody who doesn't know Jesus is not going to be turned off by somebody who claims to know Jesus but doesn't live that way. And he loves those people. So he wants to make sure, and that's why he's so harsh about this. Listen to me carefully. Your hydro flask, your t-shirts, your Instagram post, tattoos, bumper stickers, they don't have to point toward Jesus. But your lifestyle will always. And you can't put a label on it. You can't put a sticker on it. Your lifestyle will always point. And if you're not living right, you will do more damage. Listen to this. We hurt the cause of Christ. We do more damage when we advertise our lives, whether it's in social media or just around town, and the things we do or the things we say, and our life doesn't match up to it. Do you understand that? If, if, if we say that, that we're different and then our life doesn't match it, we're hurting the cause of Christ. It's not like we're neutral. We are hurting the cause of Christ. And I want you to know that if you are watching this morning and you've been hurt by another Christian, if you've been hurt by the church, if you've been hurt by a follower of Jesus, I want to apologize for that. And I want to encourage you, don't give up on God and don't give up on his church because he is not going to give up on you. We're not perfect people. No church has a group of perfect people. And people make mistakes and they do things that they shouldn't and things that don't match up with what Christianity should be. But folks, we sure need to be tried to live right. You've heard this quote before. I'm sure it's from Francis of Assisi. He says this, Let us always preach the gospel and sometimes use words. That gets back to that lifestyle statement I made. Your lifestyle is going to say a lot more than your t-shirts, your bracelets, your hydro flask, or, or whatever it might be. You're called to be something greater. You know, the scripture says we are ambassadors. Paul talks about this over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says, we are Christ's ambassadors. That means all of us. We are all Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal. All of us who are believers are, are ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Do you know what an ambassador is? An ambassador is somebody that represents their country in another country. They may represent the president. They may represent some other high official in their country. But they represent 
their country. They represent the culture of their country in another country. The Bible says you and I are ambassadors. That means we are ambassadors in the area, in the part of the the country that we live in. And everywhere we go, if we are believers, we are representing Jesus Christ. So when you go to school, when you go to the sports field, when you go to work, when when you're hanging out with friends, when you're hanging out with neighbors, when you're hanging out with family, wherever you are at, you are representing Jesus Christ. When you're on social media, you are representing Jesus. So when people see us, they should see Jesus. So what do they see when they look at you? Who are they seeing? If you're a believer, they should be seeing Jesus Christ. And another aspect of this, and I know it probably affects our students and our children the most, there's a cost to be paid. Because we live in a world where there's a lot of anti-Christian sentiment and it just seems to be getting more and more so. And it means it's not always easy to stand up and say that you're a Christian. I read this story this week. A 24-year-old lady in Uganda. She was uh, at her aunt's house. And while she was at her aunt's house, she, she just felt like that she, she, the Holy Spirit was talking to her. God was talking to her. And so on May 4th, she called a friend that she knew was a Christian, and this is what she said. She explained to me about Christ, the way of salvation, and I got convicted and accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. As she was talking, she said, on the phone, and she became joyous, she said her father overheard her, he was a Muslim, he's a Muslim, and he came in and began to slap her, give her blows in her words, and kick her. And then he called, his, called the aunt where she was at and said when she gets home, her name is Rima, and I can't say her last name because it's like 17 words or 18 syllables, whatever it was. But anyway... Her name is Rima. When she got home, her dad, because he didn't want her to convert to Christianity, poured oil on her and set her on fire. She survived, but she's going to be in a hospital for months. By the way, this isn't some Christian outlet reporting this. This was NBC News that reported this. You know, fortunately, we're not to that point in our country that that kind of thing is happening. But it is hard to follow Jesus at times. You can lose friends over it. You can lose relationships over it. You can be made fun of. Let's not sugarcoat it. There's a cost to following Jesus. Are you up for that? Are you up for paying that price? And understand this. Jesus understood that. This is what Jesus tells his disciples. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you know what? We don't belong to it anymore, do we? But you are no longer part of this world. I choose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Folks, our citizenship is not in this world. 
Our citizenship changes when we become a believer. I was talking to a lady a few years ago, and she, she started getting kind of emotional. She said that her boyfriend had broken up with her. And I said, I am so sorry. She said, it's okay. She said, I probably never should have started dating him to start with. She told me and she went on to relay to me that her involvement in church and the fact that she loved Jesus was really beginning to bother him. And basically one day he gave her an ultimatum. You either stop going to church and stop this whole Jesus thing or choose between church and Jesus and me. She said, I chose Jesus. She said, I miss him. And she said, I wish it could have been different. But she said, I knew that was the most important thing. I love Jesus the most, she said. Good for her. And those kind of decisions have to be made. And to all our students today, I, I, I just wish I could somehow convince you to, to understand when Scripture says, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, that that, that is so important. I don't care how beautiful she is or how buff he is or charming or whatever. Don't date unbelievers. Because sooner or later, and I just wish you'd hear me on this. Hear what scripture said more importantly. You are going to be in for a world of hurt at some point. Just don't do it. Set some standards. If the person is not a Christian, be nice to them, whatever. But don't date them. Following Jesus is a call to be something different for all of us. Here's number three. We are engaged in a spiritual battle at all times. As followers of Christ, we need to be continually aware that we are in a battle. Listen, we are in a battle. I think sometimes we get so busy that that we forget that and, and we're not paying attention. Who are we fighting We're fighting forces that are unseen. Paul talks about this in his famous passage over in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So we're not fighting people. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. And against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Our battle is a spiritual battle. And it's everywhere in our natural world and it's spilling over into our daily lives whether we recognize it or not. It's on social media, it's on TV, it's in our conversations, it's coming from the government, it's everywhere. When a mayor tries to tell churches what they can speak on or what issues they can talk about, that's not a one-off with a particular mayor. That's a cultural thing. Where Satan is working. And you need to understand that we're in a battle. And Satan is working for your mind, your heart, and your soul. And parents, he's working for our children and our students. Mind, body, heart, and soul. And he uses culture to do that. And we need to be aware of that. And we need to be willing to take a stand. And again, it's not the people... It's the spiritual forces that we're fighting against. The unseen forces. And we need to take a stand for what is biblically right. We need to be proud of it and not ashamed of it. And yes, it will cost something. 
Chuck Swindoll is one of my favorite pastors, and I've been listening to him for years. He's probably pretty close to 90. I started listening to him in college. Gifted expositor, gifted speaker, very practical kind of guy. And I remember him telling a story one time. He, uh, he had just finished Marine boot camp. This is before he became a pastor. And he had received his first assignment. And he, so he says he, he arrives there and he's in the barracks of his very first assignment at his very first post. And he said, I hadn't been in the barracks for 20 minutes when the men began to tell me where I could go to shack up. Folks, when you're going countercultural, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. I shared with you the, the incident about Uganda a while ago. Here's some statistics from the Vatican. The Vatican reports that 100,000 Christians die for their belief in Christ every year. To put that in perspective, every five minutes and 25 seconds, someone that says, I believe in Jesus, gets their life ended. Because they said, I believe in Jesus. When you think about it that way, it's not just 100,000 people. It kind of makes it personal, doesn't it? People are getting their life ended because they say they believe in Jesus Christ. You know, there's a book out called uh, Fox's Book of Christian Martyrs. And there's some fascinating stories in it. I want to share just one of them with you. His name was Polycarp. And he was actually a disciple of John. John kind of mentored him, and Polycarp accepted Jesus Christ when he was just a young boy. And so he was a follower of Jesus Christ his entire life. He served the church. He was a pastor. He's considered one of the, the early church fathers. He went around telling people about Jesus all the time. And finally, the Roman Empire kind of had enough of Polycarp. And so they had him arrested. They had him chained. They had him drug into the Colosseum. I, I don't know how much of this you remember from history, or if you've seen the movie Gladiator, you have an idea of what I'm talking about. But there's this coliseum, it's like a, like a stadium, and it seats thousands of thousands of people. And the Roman government would bring in Christians, and they would torture them, and, and do all kinds of horrible things to them, feed them to the lions or whatever. Sometimes they fought with uh, gladiators, and it was just, just, just this terrible scene. So they had bought, brought Polycarp there. And after they drug him around a little bit, the proconsul of Rome went up and said, Look, you need to denounce Jesus Christ. If you don't, we're going to burn you at the stake. And here's what Polycarp said. I cannot denounce Jesus. He's been nothing to, but good to me and kind to me my entire life. And I will never denounce my Savior and my Lord. I love him. The proconsul said, fine. They tied him to a pole. They put wood around him. They put oil on him and around the wood. And they lit him to burn him at the stake, or they lit the wood. Soon the fire was above his head, just roaring above his head. And do you know what happened next? Thousands and thousands of people witnessed this. This is in the history of the Roman Empire and the people that lived back then that wrote history. The fire didn't consume him. He was tied to a pole. I'm not going to denounce Jesus. The fire is enveloping him, but it didn't consume him. The Roman officials were shocked. 
The crowd was, was, was as surprised as anybody, and they're just freaking out. And they're thinking, eventually this guy is going to burn, but he didn't. Some eyewitnesses said he literally, quote, he glowed. Finally, the Romans said, we don't know what to do with this guy. Somebody go stab him with your sword. So they went in, and this is kind of gross. But somebody stabbed him with the sword, and his blood came out. Thousands of people witnessed this and extinguished the fire. His blood somehow miraculously extinguished the whole fire. The Roman authorities were so scared that they would not give his body to his followers because they were afraid something like what happened with Jesus would happen. Now, Polycarp wasn't the first martyr. We read in the book of Acts chapter 7 about Stephen. This is what it says about Stephen over in the book of Acts. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. A couple things I want to point out. Number one, he's about to be stoned. And he's looking up to heaven. He's being stoned for his faith. He's looking up to heaven... And I want you to notice the word standing. This is what's interesting. Every time you read about God sitting or God being at God's right hand, Jesus being at God's right hand, it uses the word sitting. This is the only time it says standing. I don't want to make too much of that. But maybe in a sense it's a salute or an honor from Jesus to Stephen. And I think it's certainly true, and other scriptures will back this up, that when we're representing Jesus Christ and we stand for what's right, Jesus is with us, and we are empowered by his Spirit, just like Stephen was. Fourth one, last one, we need to get trained. We commonly refer to this as discipleship. You know, it's a pretty well-known fact that the United States Armed Forces are the best trained and best prepared military forces anywhere in the world. And, and, and we make sure that our, that our men and women are trained and trained thoroughly. I remember my son, uh, when he went to his uh, advanced training school, they said that that represented about $1.6 million per soldier. And of course that varies depending on what your military occupation is. But we invest to make sure that our country has the very best soldiers and that they're trained and they're prepared. And it wouldn't be fair to our country or to our soldiers to send anything but highly trained individuals, right? What about the fight that our children and our students are fighting? Are we doing the same thing for them? We understand the problem of sending untrained soldiers, but do we do the same things with our kids as we send them out in a sin-filled world that wants their heart and soul and mind without training them? You wouldn't think of doing that with a military soldier. But what about our children, our students? Are we preparing them? It's our job as parents. It's our job as the church. It's our job as previous generations to pass the baton of faith to the next generation. 
And it's a privilege to pass that on, to encourage them, to equip them, and to prepare them. And folks, we just can't block it out. We just can't stick our head in the sand and say, well, you know what? I hope the youth pastor's on top of this. I hope those kids are listening to the pastor when when they're sitting in, in in the sanctuary. It's our job to stay engaged, and it's, it's our privilege. It is my experience that most people, it's not because they don't want to, it's just because they get too busy. They want to help the next generation, but they just get caught up in their own stuff. And it's the tyranny of the urgent. We're going too fast, and we just forget, and we're not paying attention. And it's just easy to get lost in all of that. And if there's a positive that's come, come out of the COVID-19 and the, and the shutdowns and stuff, it's just we've come to realize that a lot of things that we were really busy with aren't that important. And we spent lots more time with our families and with our children. And while I'm at it, I'd like to mention to, to some of you that are getting ready for retirement or, or you're already in retirement, I would ask that you not retire from the kingdom of God. That you would see yourself as vital. That you would see yourself as important, an important part of the church. That we need you to tell us about your fight and your faith journey and the types of obstacles that you overcame. The secular Western culture is, is advancing quickly. And folks, we need to up our game. We need to take training seriously. We need to beef up our training. Our kids need strong preparation to to tackle what's coming at them. And it's coming at them 24-7 because of these. We talked about that if you were here in December when I talked about how the digital age is making an impact on Generation Z and, and of course, the millennials and, and all of us. It's there all the time and we have to prepare them. I read a great story about a high schooler in California who came home one day and he said, Mom, I need to talk to you about something. He said, you're not going to believe this story. And he proceeded to tell his mom about his history teacher who was having a a, a lecture in the classroom about how that America didn't have freedom of religion and freedom of speech anymore. And this teacher, to illustrate their opinion, showed a video group of some Satanists that just burst into a city council meeting and just interrupted the meeting and then began to pray. And of course, they were escorted out of the building. And then he stopped the clip right there. And he says, see, you can be a Christian and you can be a Muslim, but you can't be a Satanist and pray in America. Of course, the reason they were asked to leave is because they were interrupting a meeting. Anybody would have been asked to leave. And then he also made this bogus statement that 75% of Americans are atheists which is simply not true. The figure kind of stands at about somewhere between 10 and 12%. Folks, yes, it is true that anti-Christian sentiment is on the rise. And I do want to say this. We are so blessed in our community to have so many Christian educators in the schools. You talk to people that live in other parts of the country and and they can't believe some of the the things that that our teachers and our administrators and bus drivers and the list goes on do in our school systems. Thank you for representing Jesus Christ and thank you for what you do in our school systems. 
But having said that, I know that our students, our college students, could tell you stories that would match that other student's story. Here's another 16-year-old. How come my belief is so attacked in society, even when the highlight of today's social media feeds are all about acceptance and tolerance? What kind of acceptance shuts down the voice of Christians? Well said, right? We need to make sure our children are prepared. They need to know what they believe, why they believe it, how, how do you believe it, how do you live that out? Parents, you are your child's first and primary spiritual trainer. God does not intend for you to outsource that part of your parenting. It's great to supplement that with youth groups and children's stuff and send them to camps and send them to denals and make sure they're involved in small groups. That's all great and wonderful. But you are the primary spiritual trainer. It won't be adequate. I'm not trying to burst your bubble, but if you think just sending your kids to youth activities is going to do the trick Wednesday night and Sunday morning and the other activities, it's not going to happen. We simply, when I say we, the church, simply does not have your child long enough. There's just not enough time. So let's get practical. I just want to give you some practical things, parents. Number one, we need to train our kids in the core teachings of the faith. We've got to be crystal clear on our core beliefs. Who God is, who Jesus is, what Jesus did on the cross, why that's important. That the Bible is God's inspired word. What it means to follow Jesus Christ. The Bible is God's inspired word. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Bible is the authority. Folks, if you don't have the Bible as your authority, if it's not the absolute, then every individual and every group just decides on their own. And you know what that leads to? Chaos. It's exactly what's going on in our country right now. Chaos. Because everybody wants to decide their own truth and nobody wants to have an absolute. My truth is my truth. Isn't that essentially the secular manifesto? Isn't that basically in a nutshell what they believe? You have to have an absolute. And it's God and it's God's word. Number two. We need to train our kids in apologetics. Apologetics means being able to defend your faith, knowing what you believe and also knowing why you believe it. Just don't assume that your child knows enough about the Bible to be able to do that. Number three, we need to train our kids in critical thinking and how to ask questions. Folks, following Jesus is not a blind, unquestioning, unthinking faith. Typically, we refer to Christianity as a faith tradition, but it is also a knowledge tradition. Teach your kids and yourself to ask questions. I read a great story about a sixth grader by the name of Caleb. Caleb was in science class one day, and his teacher was teaching the Big Bang Theory. And he said, so these, these molecules and these atoms and these particles all collided, and boom, we had life. 
And so Caleb raised his hand, and the teacher came over and says, what it, what's your question, Caleb? And he said, well, where do these particles and atoms and molecules come from? And his teacher said, well, science hadn't figured that out yet. And he said, Mom, I wanted to tell him I knew the answer, and it was from God, but I was afraid I'd get in trouble. That's a child that's been taught to think, to question. Teach your kids critical thinking. Fourth area is this. We need to teach our kids, we need to train our kids in listening to the Holy Spirit. We need to make sure, yes, it is a, it is a cerebral faith, but we also need to make, make sure that they understand supernatural things the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, that we're connected to God through the Holy Spirit. Do you teach your kids when they're making decisions to say, well, what do you think the Holy Spirit is telling you? What do you think God might want you to do? Do you ask them those kind of questions? Do you encourage that type of thing? And I want to close with this quote by Dallard Willard, Dallas Willard. He's not with us anymore. But he had a lot to say about spiritual disciplines. And this is a great quote from him. He said, The greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That's what we're commanded to do. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask everybody that's watching this morning, don't go anywhere. Don't go worry about lunch yet. Give me three more minutes, because I want to pray over our parents, and I also want to pray over our students. Just give me a few more minutes. Would you pray with me as I, as I pray for these two groups? I want to pray for our, our parents first. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today as, as parents, and Father, we need you. It's a confusing world out there. It's a scary world. We all fear for our children. Father, give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to, to set aside the busyness that screams for our attention all the time and, and make sure training our kids in spiritual things is a priority. Help us to train in every corner of life. Father, our kids mean so much to us. And, and Father, just as we go into this 21st century and beyond, just be with us. Fill us with your spirit. Amen. Now I want to ask our students. I want our students looking at home, watching at home. I want you to stand up. In your living room, I know that might be a little bit awkward, but I want to ask you to do that. And I want to say a prayer over you this morning. Would you pray with me, parents? God, thank you for our kids. What a blessing they are. Thank you for our children. And Lord, I pray that you'll raise up a generation that knows you. 
a generation that is bold, a generation that will follow after you. Father, may they love you. May they want to tell other people about you. May they be a generation that won't be silenced. We pray for our babies today. Protect them from the evil one. God, make them resilient faith bearers. In Jesus' name we pray.